The FT. Your reputation is your most valuable asset, but it can also be your most fragile. At Mishkondorea, we've developed a number of highly effective strategies to protect it from every journalist, ex-employee, or gossip monger out to damage it. Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to the first in a two-part podcast in the Financial Times' Deals and Dealmaker series. I'm Anusha Sakui, the Financial Times' M&A correspondent. We're going to be looking at how the role of advisors is changing in the wake of the downturn in M&A volumes, and if the departure of some high-level bankers from the industry means we are seeing the end of an era. So is the outlook gloomy for the next generation of dealmakers? I'll be talking to two of the biggest names in M&A, Ken Molis, founder and chief executive of Molis & Co., and another star rainmaker, John Sadinsky of Blackstone. First, Ken Molis is a veteran dealmaker who started his career in the 1980s at Drexel Burnham Lambert before moving to DLJ and later was president of UBS's investment bank before launching his own firm, Molis & Co., in 2007. He joins us by phone from Los Angeles. Ken, thank you very much for your time. There is a lot of focus on bankers leaving the industry or changing roles. Some say it's not as fun as it once was, um, the role of M&A advisor. Do you see a generational shift occurring today? And if so, who do you think is going to come up the ranks? Well, thanks, Anusha. It's good to be here. And the answer is I do. Uh, I see a little more accelerated than the normal generational shift. And I think the reason is investment banking and, and advisory, the advisory role of an investment banker is really a, a function of experience and judgment. And I believe um, it's an apprenticeship business. You gain your experience and your judgment over long periods of time. And I think what's happened in the industry in the last 10 years is we have reformatted the business so that experience and judgment in these large financial institutions that have been created is just less valued. Uh, The idea of selling products and generating income for annual bonus pools just doesn't give people the same respect and uh ability to use the life lessons they've gained after 25 years in the business. And I think that does lead people to look for other places to do the rest of their life's work after they've been in the business for a generation. Some people say that there hasn't been enough experience built up in the younger generation, say bankers who are you know, in their 30s or even in, the, in their 40s, to sort of replace people who started like you, who started their careers in, in the 80s. Look, my concern about the experience that has been built up is almost a negative one that people uh, look at the industry now as a, as a bonus cycle industry, as a 360 review industry, as a product industry, and, and that, is, that is really what's going to affect the next generation. In my first 20 years in this business, it was a collaborative partnership, lifetime association with your clients. You, you, when you gave advice you thought you were going to be around 10 years later to see how that advice turned out. And and that's an important difference in the way the world is being trained today. And I think that our clients are seeing that in the advice they're giving and are not excited about that. On, on that point, you know, you've had a, a long career and you've seen a lot of changes in the investment banking industry. What made you leave um, large investment banks and launch your own um, advisory firm in 2007? What's interesting is I think the people in the industry are much the same people. The people have not changed. What happened is the environment, and environment matters. Uh, if you put people in a, in a certain situation, they will react in a certain way. And I think 
I tried extraordinarily hard. I thought I could create an innovative, collaborative partnership environment for our clients inside of a large organization. And I have to say, I don't think, uh, you know, you could have tried harder. It just didn't happen. And it wasn't that the people around me were uh, bad. They were very good. But if you do not have the right soil, the right environment, the right uh, process to allow innovation, to allow people to come in and exercise their judgment and their experience, I just felt it was almost a wasted resource. And I set up my own business because I thought there are a lot of people with 20, 25, 30 years experience who are not being utilized in a way that they, if freed to, uh, to, to use all of experiences that they've gained over those years, could provide a tremendous uh, service to the corporates. And, and I think that's a great business to be in. Do you see parallels to previous cycles, say, you know, like the late 80s and early 90s when, you know, other big figures left the industry, started up uh, firms such as Perella Weinberg? It's not exactly the same. I think uh, some of these cycles are specific to things that have gone on in firms. And others, you said at the beginning of this that people aren't finding it as much fun. In every Look, I don't think the world is finding the environment to do business, not just investment banking or commercial banking, but you know, I can't tell you how many meetings I'm in where it's just not as fun in a, in a zero growth or a very low growth environment. A business isn't as fun for a lot of people. So I think the um, the downturn in the markets does give people a little more breathing room to step back and say, am I enjoying myself? Am I taking advantage of the assets I've built up in my life? Am I really using the 25 years of hard work and experience I put in to gain the judgment that I can uh, bring to a boardroom or a CEO? And is the place I'm in right now really maximizing that? And I think you're seeing that decision being made more often that the answer is no. How does a firm like yours compete with um, large investment banks who can use their balance sheet to win M&A business? Well, we don't compete on the balance sheet. And I think that um, that's a good thing. I think it's it's there's the decision to do a transaction, how to do it, and then there's the decision on how to finance it. And I think those are separate decisions. And actually, the decision whether or not to do a transaction, how to do it, trying to plan a strategy to get something done, is uh, so significant that the actual use of below-market financing to, to tempt people to do a transaction or to... Con- or to take advice that might not be optimal is actually a very distracting and a, and a negative uh, to, to the giving of good advice and, and, and judgment on transactions. What, what's your plans for Molis in the next year or two? Do you have plans to, to grow or change? I think another thing that's happening in the world that you talked about is the globalization. And it's, it's interesting that the first thing that happened is people put uh, offices around the world. And... But the key thing to that now is to get the information to flow between those offices, to get the experience and judgment. So we have 11 offices now around the world. And and truly, um, I've been surprised at how much of our business is cross-border. And so the the way I think we're going to continue to differentiate ourselves and grow is by not just populating offices and listing them on uh, stationary, but getting the experience and judgment 
from each of those 11 offices around the world that might be 12, 13, 14 in the near future, but to get the experience and judgment to flow between offices. And that may sound uh, easy, but I think there's a big difference between populating a global firm and actually utilizing the experience and judgment that exists within that firm. And what, I think we. Sorry, what does that mean for, for the way you operate your business? Well, it means that uh, you want to set up a business so that when you're doing a cross-border, we, we were involved uh, with SAB Miller, let's say Foster's, and it just or Centro in Australia, which also had a division in the United States. What it means is being able to get to this to in front of the client uh, all of the resources. It means getting the resources needed maybe in two continents and two or three time zones in two or three areas of sector expertise to work collaboratively to get the right information and to consolidate it down into a judgment that's usable for a company trying to to affect a transaction across uh, those geographies, time zones, et cetera. And I think that's... um, that's a difficult thing for a large organization to do, and I think we've been doing it very well. So not necessarily adding people, but just trying to be more seamless. Yes. Look, I think we will add people. It's a big world, and uh, we're on our five-year anniversary, so we have 400 bankers, but I think um, that may not be enough to truly access the world. We'll continue to grow. But seamless delivery of the information and judgment you've accumulated around the world is the, uh, is the goal. And are there any regions that are more important than others, do you think, now going forward? You know, on any given day, I think there's a more important or a more active place. But I think you can't go chasing yesterday's economy. So we're going to put in place a fully balanced effort around the world so that we're anticipating the future rather than chasing the past. Ken, you've seen a lot of cycles. What is your prediction for how M&A volumes will evolve over the next year or two? Look, I think actually a year or two is even a difficult thing to um, to predict. Um, there's a lot of decisions that will be made by the voters around the world and the people they elect as to how short and sharp we want to take the global medicine that uh, we have to take as an over-levered, as, as over-levered economies around the world figure out how to deal with it, or how extended we want to do that. And so it's hard for me to make those uh, predictions. But I will say this, I've been in, in a chair like this for a long time, and the cycle does happen. People uh, and companies come in every day, and they try to develop strategies to deliver unique products and growth that very often uh, involves M&A, and that cycle will come back. And the goal is to be fully prepared to be uh, to be able to deliver that judgment and experience. And, and by the way, the last part is confidentiality. Mm-hmm. People, when that cycle comes back, and you know, I, I actually don't don't know if it'll be in the next year, two, or three, but it will be back. Ken Molis, thank you for joining us, and to our listeners, thank you for being with us. Don't forget to join us for part two of this podcast next week when I'll be talking to John Sosinski, head of Blackstone's advisory business. And there's more coverage of M&A at www.ft.com forward slash dealmakers. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.